From the University of Cambridge, this is Election, the politics podcast. My name is David Runciman, and today we're bringing you a special edition of Election, recorded in front of a live audience as part of the Cambridge Festival of Ideas. Our guest is Charles Clark, the former Labour Home Secretary, and I'll be talking to him later on in the programme about political leadership, the Corbyn phenomenon, and what he thinks Labour needs to do in opposition to become a party of government again. But before that, I'm delighted to say that we're joined by our regular panel from the first series of election to discuss what's been happening in British politics since we finished broadcasting in June, and to look ahead to what we might be talking about when election returns for a second series in January. So please welcome Helen Thompson, an expert on economics, Finbar Livesey, an expert on public policy, and Chris Brooke, an expert on political theory. Back in June, when we were speculating about what might happen in the Labour leadership contest, I don't think any of us had an inkling of the earthquake to come. But I'd like to start with Helen, who did say something that now looks pretty far-sighted. Helen, you said you thought Labour had a problem because the membership that would elect the new leader was so heavily skewed towards London, making it unrepresentative of the country at large. Of course, lots of new members joined over the summer, but the question remains, how big a gap do you think there is between the people who voted for Jeremy Corbyn and the wider electorate? I think there's a pretty big gap, but I think just I want to make one point about the London issue first, because it played out in a completely different way than what I was getting at when I made that remark back in June, and that was the role of the London MPs in nominating Jeremy <coughs> Corbyn. Because if you remember, Corbyn had a terrible struggle to find 35 people to nominate him. When you look at the, the numbers, 43% of the people who nominated him were from London Labour MPs. London MPs were about 19% of the total Labour MPs. So that crucial point that got him on the ballot was very London skewed. Beyond that, I think that there's a chasm between the people who elected Jeremy Corbyn and the electoral needs of the Labour Party in significant parts of the country, not least in the Midlands where it's very difficult to see what kind of appeal he has to the kinds of voters Labour needs to win back there. And it was interesting when there was footage of him in Nuneaton, which has obviously became a kind of symbolic constituency after what happened in May. And I think it was actually because of something one of the Channel 4 journalists had, had picked up there. There was actually very few people there. So you can turn out... 1,200 people in St. Mary's Church in Cambridge, but you can't and turn... And a few hundred outside as well, because I was there. <laughs> OK. <laughs> but you really can't turn out more than 20-odd people for Jeremy Corbyn in Nuneaton. And I think that says something pretty important about the distance between the people who elected Corbyn within the Labour Party and what the wider electoral needs of the Labour Party are in terms of actually winning an election. So, Chris, do you, do you see any way of bridging that gap, if you accept that gap exists? I think... Corbyn's electoral problem is he attracts support exactly where Labour doesn't need it, given the electoral system. And insofar as people are nervous about uh, how he may be off-putting to some kind of voters, those voters are exactly where Labour needs to pick up voters. So, for example, one of the arguments people sometimes have is whether Corbyn's record of sympathy for Irish republicanism, for violent Irish republicanism, uh, will put off voters. And some people say, well, no, it was a long time ago, and he was trying to promote peace, and only older voters will remember. But if you think, well, who will the voters who are likely to have very strong feelings about the IRA? They're going to be older Protestant voters in Scotland. Now, Labour badly needs to win back voters in Scotland. Labour needs to win back older voters. And so again and again, you see Corbyn appealing to students, 
he's appealing to Greens, he's appealing to young people, but in constituencies where there are students and young people and Greens, the Labour Party already holds the parliamentary seats. But I think again and again you can find these critical electoral demographics uh, which are terribly important given the electoral system we have, and there's nothing that Corbyn can do about that until he comes to power, where Corbyn is just pointing in the wrong kind of direction. And, and what you've said makes it sound very unlikely that he will come to power, but we'll come on to that in a second. should also say that Cambridge is just one of the seats that you describe, and it is now, of course, held by a Labour MP. Finbar, the other big gap that may be opening up in politics on, broadly speaking, the left is between the membership of the Labour Party and the parliamentary Labour Party. Yesterday, the final guest that we had on the first series of this podcast was Lord Grabener, who is the Master of Clare College here, um, is also a Labour peer, or I should say was a Labour peer, because yesterday he resigned the Labour whip on the grounds that he did not believe he could remain in the party as a representative in Parliament while Corbyn was leader. There has been talk, but none of it has come to pass yet, that there may be defections not just among a few peers, which is what has happened, but among members of the House of Commons. That hasn't happened yet. But Finbar, do you see that tension widening as we go forward between the membership and the parliamentary party, particularly in the Commons? I think the tension is going to widen, but there's going to be a critical moment. Is Corbyn going to be in the seat until we get to the next election? I see it as a four years with two transitions and two referenda. And the first transition is the transition from Corbyn to the next Labour leader. I think the reason you haven't seen defection so far is that much of the parliamentary Labour Party who don't support Corbyn are sitting on their hands going, it's going to implode. And when it implodes, then we can start putting the party back together again. And we want to be there when it implodes. We and don't want to have jumped ship. We don't want to have jumped ship. And so at that point, those people who've come out and supported Corbyn in safe Labour seats potentially are now in a bind if Corbyn doesn't make it to the next election. And so one of the critical questions for me towards the end of this four-year, five-year cycle is, will the three-pound voters turn up again and in the same numbers and with the same voice? Because that's what got them elected. And just to be clear, you mean will they turn up again for the next Labour leadership election? Because yep. there's another question, which is, will they actually turn up and vote at the next general election? Exactly. Helen, there's also been some anxiety recently about the creation of a new movement called Momentum, which is essentially the extension of the campaign to get Jeremy Corbyn elected leader of the party. And those who suspect that there's something more going on behind the scenes see this is possibly the beginning of a campaign to start to deselect some of the MPs who aren't sympathetic to Corbyn's cause. Again, is that something you think realistically might happen as we move forward, that this tension will play out around the question of the selection and deselection of individual members of parliament, particularly as constituency boundaries start to be redrawn? I think that's the crucial question, is the boundary change question and when it's going to come. Because the Corbyn supporters, in one sense, only have to wait for that to come, and then there has to be an awful lot of reselection of candidates, just because so many constituencies will have to be withdrawn to reduce the number of representatives. And, and just to let people know, the number that is being talked about is to get down to 600 yeah. members of Parliament. So the problem for Corbyn, though, is, is by that time, an awful lot of things could have gone wrong in terms of his own leadership. So will he survive long enough to get to the point where he's got the chance? Once you've got people in, around him who start to worry that he might not, then you've got, they've got some incentive to act more quickly. They act more quickly, it may be that that's a destructive act in itself, but it also could be very nerve-wracking for some of the more obvious candidates for deselection, particularly those, say, like Simon Danzuk, who've been particularly vocal in criticising him in ways that clearly antagonise 
more than just the people around Corbyn himself. And Finbar mentioned there are lots of things that are going to happen between now and 2020, which is when the next election is legally required to be held, unless they change that legislation as well. One is that we know that there will be a referendum, an in-out referendum on Europe. The other is that we expect that there will be a change of leadership of the Conservative Party consequent on that. And I certainly don't believe that David Cameron is going to renege on that promise. I think in an age of anti-politics, it would be crazy for a Prime Minister to renege on such a clear commitment. Can you see circumstances in which, despite everything that we've said, Jeremy Corbyn ends up in number 10 Downing Street? Anyone want to say yes to that question? And if so, what would the circumstances have to be that get him there? For instance, the Conservative Party splits following a disastrous Euro referendum result. I think you probably have to put that with another event. And I'm not wishing it upon anybody, but if there is another global economic event, I don't think you get there just from a, even a heavily fractured Conservative Party. I think you have to have that plus something to get any chance of Corbyn being in power. Chris? I, I think that's right. I mean, the way that um, one of the scenarios that people sometimes play around with is, is this idea that if Corbyn is able to come out strongly against British membership of the European Union, would he carry enough support with him, if not in the Labour Party, then in the country, that the in-out referendum would vote for out? And we have to say that he has already more or less committed himself not to do that. That's right, because the people around him, around the shadow cabinet table, are so strongly pro-supporting continued British membership. But just the other day, YouGov was polling people about how would you vote in the referendum if Corbyn supports continued membership, and then how would you vote in the referendum if Corbyn calls for the UK to leave? And you get interestingly different results. So if the UK votes to leave, then that's going to transform British politics in very fundamental ways. And if, we're, if that's going to happen, then sure, maybe when things settle down, Corbyn is in number 10. Helen, you are the person on this panel who knows more about our economic prospects than the rest of us do. It doesn't mean you know what's going to happen. What about, as you see it, the current state of the British economy and the problems that that may produce for the government over the next five years, and particularly for the person who is currently David Cameron's likeliest successor, George Osborne, the Chancellor of the Exchequer. Of course, British economic fortunes are tied to global economic fortunes, but if we look at it a little bit more insular fashion, does the British economy face the kinds of risks that could upend people's political calculations? I'm not sure that it does on its own terms, but I think that you can't separate it from the global question, and I think it certainly does in the global context. It's pretty clear that the financial markets are becoming more and more unstable this year, almost on a month-by-month -month basis, and that it will be incredibly difficult for the British economy to isolate itself from a financial crash. And I think there's a reasonable possibility that another financial crash will happen before the next election, and that would induce another recession for the British economy. I must say, though, I, I'm not convinced that that's something that takes Jeremy Corbyn to Downing Street. I think that what you would get in the kind of financial crash that's likely to happen is more likely a, a shift to the right, a reaction against debt, which will be seen as being an important part of what's caused that financial crash. And the other thing I think Chris has already brought up on the IRA question, that to me alone is the reason why Jeremy Corbyn will never be in Downing Street. I think it's just... With most voters over 40, it just means it's a non-starter. One last question before we move on to talk to Charles Clark about some of these issues as well. 
Um, we haven't mentioned a party that we discussed a lot in the first series of election, and that is UKIP. And UKIP did not have a good general election in terms of parliamentary seats, but they did win more than 12% of the popular vote. <coughs> They've had their own leadership problems. To be honest, everyone bar the Conservatives have had their own leadership problems since the election. Uh, it's not clear what Nigel Farage's status is going forward. Some people think that the UKIP phenomenon has peaked and passed. My sense of it is, if you think about the Euro referendum, there are various possible scenarios. But say that the likeliest scenario is the result being something like the Scottish referendum result, which is a 55-45 vote for the status quo. But in the end, anxiety about change just trumps a desire to give the political class a kicking. What the SNP have shown in Scotland is what you can do with the 45. Um, because those are people who do not get what they want and need a channel and expression for their sense that they were asked a question, the answer didn't come out the way they wanted, and they want to push on. And I think, in some ways, the central question for British politics going forward is who speaks for the 45, if that's the result. Now, my final question to you, and we can come back to these issues a bit later, do you think UKIP have peaked, or might UKIP plausibly speak for the 45% who wish to leave the European Union and don't get their way? I don't think that they do. I think that UKIP has peaked, and I think that the referendum is going to, as you say, have a number of scenarios attached to it, and is highly unpredictable right now. And if there's one thing we learned from the first season that we did on this podcast, that we shouldn't be very tied to predictions or polls. Particularly us. Particularly <laughs> us. Helen can be Helen tied can be, to her exactly. predictions because she called it right. But, um, and I should say, we'll get onto it, Charles Clark also called it completely right. The only people I know who got it right are my mother, Charles Clark. And Helen. <laughs> but in terms of, I don't think you can say who speaks for the 45% in that sense, because I think what we're living through is actually a result also of people going to the polls in the last election and having an expectation that there was going to be another coalition government. And actually, it's been a shock that there's a majority conservative government. And so I think it actually can push a little bit in the other direction, that people who felt safe to use their vote in a different way won't feel safe to do that. And so some of the smaller parties will suffer and there may be a concentration into a trust in that people will want to have a vote that they feel will land in the way that they want it to land. Chris, Helen, very briefly, UKIP, do they have a future over the next five years as a really serious force in British politics? Depending on what happens at the referendum, absolutely. If Labour is forced into a position of taking part in the official stay or remain, or whatever it's going to be called, campaign, then there are going to be a lot of unhappy, not especially affluent voters who will be um, interested in what the one party in England with a clear out message has to say. The referendum could be the salvaging of the UKIP. I think yes for that reason, but also because Labour have given them a significant opportunity in the north in particular, but part of the Midlands as well, as a result of electing Corbyn. Thanks very much to Helen, Finbar and Chris. Now to our special guest, Charles Clark, who served as Chief of Staff to Labour leader Neil Kinnock in the 1980s and early 90s, before becoming a Senior Cabinet Minister in Tony Blair's government as Education Secretary and then Home Secretary. Much more recently, he has edited a fascinating new three-volume collection of books on the theme of party political leadership, with each volume comparing the leaders of the three main parties over their modern history, Conservatives, Labour and Liberals. The books use a deceptively simple measure to assess a leader's performance. How many parliamentary seats did he, or in one case she, 
add or subtract to the party's total during their time in office. On that score, David Cameron turns out to be one of the most successful leaders, not just in Conservative, but in modern British political history, having gained 132 seats since 2005. So Charles, I'd like to start by asking you if you do think it is right, therefore, to describe David Cameron as one of this country's most successful party political leaders. I think he has to be uh, considered that way. He is widely derided, was widely derided, and when I put this particular proposition to a number of very senior Conservatives, who do you think is the best leader? Nobody named him. They couldn't see it like that. But the fact is that both in terms of share of the vote and in terms of seats gained during his period of office, he's in the top three Conservative leaders since uh, 1900. It's himself, Margaret Thatcher and Stanley Baldwin. And in the case of actual seats, uh, he is top. He's won more seats as a leader than any Labour leader other than uh, Clement Attlee. And I think it's quite striking and surprising. So we'll come on in a second to what that measure might lead out. But just following on from that thought, what then are the qualities that he has that marks him out from this long and distinguished list? I mean, we're talking about everyone who has led a party in Britain in the modern era. Well, what does Cameron have? In these three books, we looked at five different qualities. First, having a winning electoral strategy. He started with a big effort to bring the Tories back to the centre ground of politics. All the stuff about the Arctic and hugging a hoodie and all this kind of stuff. Said the Tories had gone way out to the right and he had to bring them back. And one of the truths of all this his elections are fought on the centre ground. And his particular election strategy for 2015, which was simply to say we can solve the economy and we say Ed Miliband is a weak leader, proved extremely successful. Secondly, governing competence. That's a, a slightly difficult one. But I think most people believe that he's been a fairly competent Prime Minister. And the polls certainly suggest that. And the that. polls suggest that. And so people don't want to get rid of somebody who's seen as competent. Thirdly, party management. Well, he's played a lot of games which I find very distasteful in playing with his very little Englander, inward nationalist elements of his party in dealing with UKIP. But he has held the party together. Now, the final big throw of all this is the European referendum, which is the final stage in that process, and it could blow it all out of the water. But so far, he's been able to do that. Has he been in tune, fourthly, with the general political argument running in the country? Again, I think he's done pretty well. And finally, bending the rules of the game. Well, he's doing that very well. We had the vote this week on English votes for English laws. There are a set of different areas where he's trying to change the rules in favour of the Conservative Party just today. The Labour Party's organised its campaign on voter registration, where the Conservatives, they claim, are making changes which help the Conservatives against the other parties in terms of electoral registration. So I think on all these tests, he's actually done pretty well. I might not like it, but I do take my hat off to the way he's approached it. But as you said, it could all still go wrong. We may be talking about the peak of his fortunes as well, because the Euro referendum, as we were discussing, could change everything. Mm. Do you believe, as, as a lot of people are starting to take for granted, that if out wins, David Cameron must resign? Yes, but I don't think out will win. He's a gambler, David Cameron. It may not seem like this, but the Scottish referendum was a classic gamble, and he won. Now, he thought for a while he wasn't going to win, no doubt a week before polling. Day, he had his wobble. He had his wobble. But the fact is, end of the day, he's won. The EU referendum is a similar gamble. I personally think the national interest of the UK is so very, very strongly in favour of continued membership that despite people's very genuine worries, and lots of people do have genuine worries, at the end of the day, the poll will keep the UK inside the EU. So if that is true, he's won by a mile and he's confirmed his position. If that's completely wrong, I think he would have no choice but to resign. 
If we can now come on to the Jeremy Corbyn question, your books have this broad historical sweep, but in terms of party leadership, the biggest change in recent British politics has been the move from party leaders being chosen by the parliamentary party, or in the case of the Labour Party, by a mixture of the parliamentary party and the trade unions and the membership, to this becoming a democratic process, one member, one vote, both for the Conservatives and for the Labour Party, and now for the Liberal Democrats. So you're asking an electorate, which is by definition a narrow sample of the overall national electorate, to choose a leader. And the historical record so far has been pretty mixed on this in that, never mind Jeremy Corbyn, the Conservative membership chose Ian Duncan Smith quite decisively as their leader. It certainly looks like that when you ask party members what they want in a leader, the answer is somewhat different to the categories that you've just been describing which is an answer to the question, what makes a good and successful party leader in electoral terms? So what do you think that the people who voted for Jeremy Corbyn were looking for in a party leader that gave them that answer to the question? I think there is a large number of people who feel very, very disaffected. They feel that politicians aren't solving the problems they're worried about, whether it's the welfare state, the ageing society, immigration, climate change, whatever it might happen to be. And they've got fed up with it. And there's a particular group with, of Labour who feel that Labour in both 2010 and 2015 uh, were saying, vote for us, we're not the Conservatives. And that was the only argument. And people see that as very negative and thought that Jeremy Corbyn was the candidate of change, something different. And the other three Labour candidates weren't able, in my opinion, rightly or wrongly, to come over as candidates for change. I think there's an interesting statistical point. If you look at the vote for Diane Abbott in the Labour leadership election in London, she got 16.8%. If you look at Andrew Regal, who got the support of the Corbynites in the deputy leadership election, she got 16.2%. And there's a big difference between those 16.8, 16.2, voting for clear ultra-leftist candidates and the 60% who voted for Jeremy. And I think the interesting thing in this period will be now what happens in Labour as those people say, look, we want the wide discussion in Labour, we want to get onto a forward-looking optimistic agenda. And I think that's a tension between that and the traditional ultra-leftist people from which Jeremy Corbyn actually comes and from which he's surrounded. And how that plays out will be a very interesting... Well, that, that's very interesting because then we've got a, another split. As Now we've got three-way in that we were talking about the membership, the momentum movement, the movement for change in yes. the parliamentary party, but you feel within the movement for change there is another, between what you might call the organisers and the wider momentum simply for some different kind of politics, because the organising mode of that looks very traditional. It yes. seems to have its roots in the 80s. Absolutely, its roots are in the 80s, uh, but what, uh, the way I see it is if, if it's right that there's a large section of the electorate who are disaffected with politics generally, maybe a quarter, maybe a third, and you can see it in the Tea Party movement or Le Front National in France, that exists in this country too. I think that's the basis of the UKIP support, I think it was the basis of the SNP support, and it's a question of who can lead this general feeling of disaffection. And that same group has come to support Jeremy Corbyn in this election. But they could move on. They have no allegiance to any particular group other than the charismatic Pied Piper, the Nigel Farage, the Alex Salmond, the Jeremy Corbyn, but then can move on in different circumstances. And so do you think, as I said when I introduced you, you did work very closely with Neil Kinnock through the long period of Labour opposition, and some of what we're seeing now has its roots back then. And I totally take your point that the appetite is for something new, but there may be lessons from that period as well. And I want to talk about how you think Labour as a party of opposition can start to plausibly once again become a party of government. 
I've just been reading the second volume of Charles Moore's biography of Margaret Thatcher, and he has a very striking passage in there where he says, the mistake that Labour made in the 1980s, particularly the most passionate Labour supporters, was their hatred for Margaret Thatcher actually became a distraction from the real business of opposition, which is to understand what it is that people want and how it's at the moment being channeled into the electoral fortunes of your opponents. Now, my sense is that Labour may be repeating that mistake now. There is, there is so much anger and bile. So that's a long way of asking you, do you recognise Charles Moore's description? And are there lessons from the 1980s that you think do need to be applied now? I do recognise the description, and I really try and attack it from the point of view of how do you oppose. It's easy to oppose at one level. The government says X, and the opposition says X is a load of rubbish for whatever reasons. And just about whatever X the government does, there will be serious arguments against it which you can mobilise. Is that the base of the opposition? Or alternatively, is the alternative to compare what the government is doing with what you would do were you in government? And that's a different, whole different basis of opposition. Now, in the 80s, we had a whole series of policy issues. Membership of the European Union, selling council houses, nuclear disarmament, privatisation, where we went through a long and hard discussion in the Labour Party, which was about coming to terms with the values which Margaret Thatcher represented. We found as a party very, very difficult. But at the end of the day, by the time we got to 1992, we'd done most of that, not all of that, actually. And then Tony Blair for 97 took it a further step forward to say that uh, Labour at that time was in tune with what people were thinking, which it hadn't been previously. And that policy change, which was very hard, is what Labour has to do now. It has to say, what are the choices that we will put b before the British people in 2020 in policy terms? I'm doubtful whether Jeremy Corbyn and his leadership team can do that, but I'm confident that within Labour there are a whole series of people who are able to think that through in a positive way. And if I had to ask you for one policy area where you think they should start, where would it be? Where does it the heavy to, lifting have to start? It has to be the economy. I mean, the way, ele the way elections work is if the electorate don't trust you to run the economy, you're not in the ring. Once you've passed that test, you can have a discussion what would be better, what would be worse. But we absolutely failed to pass that test, both in 2010 and 2015. People haven't trusted us on the economy. That's been Labour's historic problem, of course, going right back to 1931. The only time in my, I, I believe, in the whole history of Labour where you could say it was trusted on the economy was from about 1998, just after we were elected, through to about 2006, 2007. But we threw that away because we didn't explain what really happened in 2008, allowed a Tory narrative to get going, which was, in my opinion, inaccurate. So our key challenge is to be able to persuade people that we know how we could run the economy in a coherent way. Very difficult to do from opposition. Impossible if you're called Jeremy Corbyn. <laughs> is it now too late to explain to people, in your terms, what really happened in 2007 and 8? Is there a way that the message that the Corbyn team would like to project, which is that there is a responsible and economically efficient way of doing anti-austerity politics if you genuinely understand some of the structural forces at work. Is it too late for that message? It's not too late. It should have started in 2010. Uh, Labour allowed itself to be distracted by its own leadership election then, and a set of arguments were made which were never contested. I don't understand to this day why Labour from two t 2010 to 2015 didn't try and set out a better picture. 
I wasn't a big fan of Gordon Brown as Prime Minister, but his period immediately uh, after the 2008 uh, crisis in relation to the G20 and the world economy, he played an outstanding positive leadership role. In fact, the whole world crisis was a lot less than it would have been, in my opinion, had Gordon Brown not been the UK Prime Minister at that time. Others may disagree, of course, but I think there is actually a perfectly coherent story to be told about Labour and the economy. Whether Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell are able ever to even to open the door to people listening to what they say, I'm very doubtful. I agreed with what Helen said earlier. If we have another great economic crisis, people won't just say, oh, blimey, uh, McDonnell and uh, Corbyn are right all along, we'll vote for them. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's not going to happen. Thanks very much to Charles Clark. Before we return to our panel, we went out onto the streets of Cambridge to ask people how the remarkable events of the summer might have affected their view of politics. If Jeremy Corbyn could be elected leader of the Labour Party, what other seemingly impossible things might happen? The most impossible thing was to renationalise the railways, I would think. It cost a lot of money to renationalise. I lived through the days when it was nationalised before and it didn't work. And I don't believe you should go back and do things that didn't work again. Oh, there's an action front going downhill in France. That would be great. I think it's absolutely appalling what's it's happening in France, and not just in France. And I'm interested in France because I'm French. And uh, Marine Le Pen is doing very well, which is a worry. What could happen next? I think there'll be a very quick uh, Labour election for a new leader. I see this as a Michael Foote era. They'll go into a steady decline. There could be, actually, there could be another offshoot of another party, a bit like the SDP a few years ago. If uh, Jeremy Corbyn can be elected leader of Labour, what other seemingly impossible things could happen? Oh, wow. I think they're going to see interesting results in the next election and then they're going to have to reform around someone who, I guess, sadly, for the sake of modern politics, is far more centre of the left and uh, doesn't divide people quite as much. Bernie Sanders could be elected president of the US. That would be equally surprising, do you think? Or more so? Similarly, yeah. Um, Bernie Sanders has been a fringe politician for decades. One of the lone self-proclaimed socialists in the US Congress. With a graduate community that's 80% international here in Cambridge, a lot of people are talking about these elections side by side. The only thing that both sides of these increasingly polarized countries have in common is dissatisfaction with the current system. And I don't think it's just the specific politicians. I think it's the role of money in politics and the disenfranchisement of marginalized voters. Conservatism gets a heart. And that would surprise you because? Because I think it's gone too far the other way. They're trying to uh, present themselves as being um, sympathetic and they're not. Well, it really is, yes. How absurd can politics become? I suppose you might say the Conservative Party could be taken over by those that wish to leave the European Union and bar immigration, despite the fact that immigration has been the, one of the major elements of growth that's taken place. Oh, goodness. 
the surprises all the time, isn't there? I, I honestly don't know. This country seems in a very disorganised state, politically and otherwise. One minute we're supposed to be very good floating, all the money's all right. The next minute we haven't got the money for this, that and the other. It's very confusing. Putin, I suppose, could decide to come on the side of the West, perhaps, couldn't he? And could show a more egalitarian approach to his apparent approach to the situation in Syria, perhaps. That would be a surprise, wouldn't it? I couldn't tell you. I don't know. After that, who knows? What we're going to go on now and do is to talk through some of those themes, particularly the American election, which is what we're going to be covering in the second series of this podcast, but also some of these wider international questions. But does anyone want to pick up? Is there a scenario where the Greens and UKIP could actually take away Labour votes, particularly in the former case in the university towns, latter in the northern towns, so that Labour doesn't become the second power in UK politics? A mid-term vote of no confidence in the current government triggering an election. Theresa May becoming leader of the Conservatives. <laughs> so the, the, the first one, which is... I think it's fair to say that we've been talking on the assumption, which has just been challenged, that under a first-past-the-post system, Labour is pretty entrenched as the only possible alternative government. And it is certainly true that um, it's hard to see how you get from where we are now to electoral reform. But were there electoral reform, a lot of the calculations we were describing change because, not least, both of the main parties could plausibly split. Um, under PR systems, you don't get two main parties, you get a range of parties. And there is a way in which it makes almost perfect sense for Jeremy Corbyn to be leader of a further to the left than the mainstream Labour Party, which maybe pitches for about 20%, 25% of the vote, and then could form part of a coalition government. But under where we are now, because there isn't, under the current parliamentary arithmetic, a way I think you can get to electoral reform, because the Tories would block it. Are we right to assume that Labour will remain the party of opposition rather than having the vote chipped away and the support chipped away such that, insofar as there is a party of opposition, it is some coalition of the minor parties instead? Chris? Some people do have this. Uh, for them, it's often an optimistic thought that there might be a popular anti-conservative front that will bring together the Liberal Democrats, the Greens, the Scottish Nationalists, the Welsh Nationalists and Labour. And they think about what a common platform might look like, which would have a move to a more proportional voting system in its heart. But it's very difficult to see how that common interest could emerge, because these other parties are trying to take support away from Labour. If you look at where the Greens are targeting, they used to be strong in Oxford East, which is Andrew Smith's seat, a Labour seat. They hold the Brighton Pavilion seat. They're facing a challenge from Labour. There's one of the Bristol seats where they're popular but Labour won the seat at the general election. And in Charles Clark's former uh, city in Norwich, the Greens are strong there, but the constituency they're strong in is a Labour seat. So it's not the case that there's any ground for sort of redirecting green fire against the Conservative Party. The Greens at the moment, their strategy is all about winning council seats and trying to challenge for constituencies that are held by Labour. It's a zero-sum game, and it's very, very difficult to see where the ground for a sort of popular front of the left might work in terms of electoral strategy. Charles, do you have any anxieties that the Labour Party might actually be in some kind of terminal decline, and that even with our very rigid British electoral system, there is a risk that the Labour Party 
ceases to be the alternative party of government? I worry about it, but I don't think it'll happen. The last time a great British party declined, it was the Liberals. And the Liberals declined for a number of reasons. But there was in the wings a Labour Party, an organised trade union movement, which could move in. I don't believe that's the case at the moment. I think Chris's analysis is entirely correct. I was interviewing Caroline Lucas on Thursday this week in Norwich about this, and she talked about an overall uh, deal. But actually, there isn't any deal that makes sense. The only place that there could be a deal which made sense was with the Liberal Democrats, where you could imagine half a dozen seats with a potential Liberal Democrat wins and half a dozen seats which are Labour wins, where you could have some kind of electoral pact of the kind that has happened in the past. And that could help take away the Tories' overall majority, because it only takes them to lose six seats to lose their overall majority. But then the next enormous hurdle is even if the Tories are in minority and not in overall majority as they are, how can you get a joint position amongst all the other parties, and in particular between Labour and the Scottish National Party, which would be capable of governing? I just don't quite see how that works. And a precondition in the current arithmetic of an alternative government to the Tories after 2020 is that there is some viable proposition that the British people would accept before the election effectively of some kind of alliance between Labour, the SNP and the other parties. So I do worry about this. But I think the answer for Labour is to reduce the uh, support of the Greens and UKIP by having a coherent political strategy themselves. And at the moment, we haven't. But if we did, the Greens and UKIP would very much fade away. So then to come on to the second question, if I can paraphrase it a bit, but one of the other features of the British electoral system is we now have these fixed five-year parliamentary cycles. And five years seems to me a long time in a world that's changing very fast. Um, Uber didn't exist five years ago, I think. Helen, do you think there's any plausible way in which the British political system could introduce some mid-term form of sanction, recall, a primary system for party leaders, maybe something analogous to what happens in the United States? Of course, it's very hard under a parliamentary system to do that. But is there any way, if five years is too long and we don't change the Fixed-Term Parliament Act, is there any way we can inject a bit more accountability halfway through? It's not obvious to see how we can. I mean, I think something interesting could happen halfway through this parliament or roughly halfway through this parliament if this referendum were lost from the point of view of Cameron because that would be a reflection of the chasm between the voters and the political class, essentially, given that the centres of each of the three parties are in favour of continuing membership of the European Union. That would be turning our politics upside down and something new would emerge. But I find it very difficult to see how that quickly turns into some extra measures of accountability that come halfway through a parliament. I think the other thing, though, is, is that the electoral system is going to find it incredibly difficult to cope with what is going to come, particularly perhaps in a scenario you know, in which Corbyn or a version of Corbyn fights that election for Labour and Labour does very badly. And say a scenario, going back to your point earlier about who's going to represent the 45% in which UKIP does well in terms of the popular vote. A not inconceivable scenario in which the amount of the popular vote that Labour gets and the amount of the popular vote that UKIP gets is within touching distance with each other, a bit like the 1983 situation with Labour and the Alliance. And at the same time, you have a divided in some ways, unpopular Conservative Party. Can the electoral system really cope again with this amount of disconnect between what voters are expressing that they want and what the constituency boundaries turn out in terms of Parliament? I'm not sure that it can. I, I do think one of the really fascinating features of British politics at the moment is, in one description, 
we have these huge gaps between elections. By historic standards, five years is a very long time. Actually, the average time, I think, is closer to three and a half. But on the other hand, we're in this unique period where we have these three very, very important, not elections, but votes, the Scottish referendum, then a general election, and then the European referendum, all within about three years of each other, each of them hugely significant. So this is this weird period of British politics, which is both rather stagnant and a period of extraordinary change. And I think that the, the change narrative, when historians look back, is likely to be the dominant one. The other timescale problem, though, is that many of the big problems we have in the country, whether, as I say, welfare reform, ageing society, immigration or whatever, are issues which require long-term solutions. And one of our problems is we have a very short-term political culture, which makes it much more difficult to get the kind of agreement you need to uh, achieve long-term solutions. So that is a real contradiction in the process. But uh, unfortunately, there's no way through. We have to change our political structure. We do need a more uh, proportional system. We do need more flexibility. We need more accountability of MPs to their constituents, and so on. But the current system isn't doing that. Unfortunately, the Conservatives are the most resistant to any form of change of any of the main parties. Labour now, I think, is ready to look at doing things in a different way, if only the force majeure of being in opposition. If we can go to the, the third question then and have a brief discussion about this, because we haven't talked about it, and I'm sure people maybe would like to hear our views on this. If it is the case that David Cameron does stand down, which I think he will before the next election, there is also the question of who is likely to be the next Conservative leader. So we heard that as a sort of seemingly impossible scenario, which actually it doesn't seem to me to be seemingly impossible, it could be Theresa May. I mentioned that um, I've just read the second volume of Charles Moore's biography of Margaret Thatcher, which covers the period from the Falklands War through to the 1987 general election. And one of the really striking things about that book is, apart from a couple of footnotes, John Major features in it nowhere. So in the history of the middle period of the Thatcher government, there is no mention of the man who is three years later going to be prime minister, which people often point to that if you want to win the Conservative leadership election, it's good if no one's heard of you <laughs> <laughs> three years before it happens because the favourite doesn't win. Well, we're probably more than three years out, I think, from the Conservative leadership election. At the moment, the conventional wisdom is that the choice is between the favourite, George Osborne, the conventional right-wing candidate, Theresa May, and the maverick right-wing candidate, Boris Johnson. And it's also worth remembering that the Conservatives have a variant on the Labour electoral system for leader. Unlike the Labour Party, they don't let anyone nominated past the threshold go to the members, only the top two. So if Labour had had the Tory system, the vote would have been between Andy Burnham and Yvette Cooper. And that's designed to add an extra threshold to rule out the Corbyn effect. It didn't work with Ian Duncan Smith, but. I think in the case of the Tories, the question therefore is, does Boris Johnson get into the top two? Because the evidence of the Conservative Party conference is he's still hugely popular with the membership. So anyone can jump in on this. The first question is, does anyone think that Theresa May might be the next leader of the Labour? Oh. <laughs> Let's keep this in. That would be surprising. Does anyone think that Theresa May might be the next leader of the Conservative Party? Or does anyone want to suggest that it might well be a candidate from outside those three favourites? First, anyone for May? I think May could win. I think she only has a small amount of support from key people in the Conservative Party, but I think the kind of people she has, the people who've worked for her in the past, her former special advisers, people who've worked on her team, I think they're pretty effective operators. And I can imagine an election that is Boris Johnson against Theresa May, 
in the runoff in front of the members after George Osborne crashes and burns somehow. And we see May's backroom people destroying Johnson in the press, in the Tory press, with his long history of inciting his friends to break people's legs and um, his various affairs and so on and so on. I think if anyone can destroy Johnson's reputation with the public, it's some of Theresa May's associates. And that's for sheer political skullduggery is something I'd really, really like to see. <laughs> and as an extension of that, of course, one of the things that marks her out in this field is that she is a woman. And does that help her if it's a showdown with Johnson for some of the reasons that you described? Maybe, but I think one of the underestimated aspects of the Labour leadership election is that we don't think enough that when Labour elected its leader, it might also have been helping to select the next Conservative Prime Minister. <coughs> I do think May's chances would have been better had Yvette Cooper won the Labour leadership election. I do think that would have helped Theresa May because a lot of the people who supported Yvette Cooper had this idea that the Tories like Cameron and like Johnson and like uh, Osborne aren't very good at dealing with strong, articulate, intelligent women. And I think there might very well have been a move in the Conservative Party to see May as exactly the right candidate to put up against Yvette Cooper leading the opposition. I think you can tell other stories where had Labour selected other candidates, that would have enhanced the fortunes of that particular Conservative politician who looks like the best answer to that leader of the opposition. Fumba, do you think those three are the field, or do you think it might be broader than that? Right now, those three are the field. But as you said, John Major wasn't mentioned up to three years before when he became Prime Minister. And there can be another candidate coming from another part of the party. For me, the interesting conversation underneath the hood as part of the skullduggery is what's the relationship with Cameron for Osborne? And as we get closer to the point of when is he finally going to step down, how is that relationship managed? And how is that process managed? Because again, under the British system, it's not like the presidential system where you can have a lame duck and then the leadership election running alongside it. The transition is actually incredibly hard to manage because the new leader of the Conservative Party becomes prime minister and then has to fight an election. How long do they need before the election to be a plausible candidate. And so for me, there's going to be a growing tension from Osborne's team of when, when, when. And that will start to express itself in a potentially a loss of discipline. And at that point, you also get to see Osborne, he has to now be prime ministerial. And a lot of people would say that he isn't at present. And his expression, his body language, and the other things he does, the Superman pose, for those of you who've seen the photographs, um, scream that he isn't going to be the person in the slot. I think the final choice will be George Osborne or A and other. I think that Theresa May has already gone over the top. I think she did that at the Conservative Party conference. Cameron is distancing himself from her in some respects. The only way in which her candidacy could be strengthened is if we did vote no in the European referendum. And I think in those circumstances, perhaps, I'm not a fan of hers. Normally, there's a former Home Secretary's club where we all think the other person's terribly good. That's not my opinion of Theresa May. I think she's been a very bad Home Secretary, and I think that will play. Boris Johnson, while charming in some respects, is extremely frustrated. He will have to be a Cabinet Minister after he finishes as Mayor of London, and I'm sure Cameron will put him there. What post, how, how will he do it? Will he do it well or badly? The number of hurdles for Boris Johnson to trip over between now and the Tory leadership election is very large. I think Osborne will be the favourite all the way through, despite all the negatives. 
But I think that by the time we get to 2019, 2018, or whenever it is, there will be another candidate emerge who will do better in the Parliamentary Conservative Party than May or Johnson, meaning that the final choice will be Osborne, who will be strong enough to be in that final runoff, and the A and other. But I, I think that both uh, May and Johnson are on a declining path and increasingly frustrated, so we'll see a lot of theatre around them, but I don't think they'll make it. Helen, very briefly, do, do you have a prediction for I this? think that... As our... No, 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 no. Of the part of my prediction is going to be not to make a prediction. So mm -hmm. I think that if the referendum is won, then it's Osborne and the transition is actually not that complicated because it provides the timing for Cameron to go. If the referendum has the possibility of being lost, and I do think it has the possibility of being lost, and that becomes clear before the referendum, then I think no one should make any prediction about it. Thank you very much. In January, we're returning with season two of election when we'll be looking beyond Britain to discuss electoral politics around the world, starting with the US presidential primaries. As we were hearing from people on the streets of Cambridge earlier, while we've been enjoying Corbyn mania, American politics has experienced the rise of its own maverick candidates, including Bernie Sanders, but most notoriously, Donald Trump. And though Trump clearly stands for very different things, Fimber, I think it's a real question, as was suggested by one of our contributors earlier, that the popularity of these maverick candidates is part of the same phenomenon that led to the election of Jeremy Corbyn as leader of the Labour Party. So do you think it is plausible to see something that joins British and American politics and that, weird as it might sound, Trump and Corbyn are part of the same phenomenon, or is Trump a uniquely American phenomenon? I think I'm going to say yes and no and be fence-sitting. Um, yes, there's a connection, obviously, because of this rising discontent with the way in which political systems aren't giving people what they want. They aren't as people have said, seem to be solving the problems that are facing us. But Trump is a very, very different beast in terms of the manner in which he's come into the process, and specifically how money works within the American system. And uh, Corbyn comes with three pound price tag attached to vote for him. Trump comes with billions of dollars and ad buys in every state that he wishes to do an ad buy, and ignoring the traditional politics, not doing ad buys and not doing a lot of investment in field operations in Iowa and other states. So there's a grain of connection, but everything after that is completely different. And, and we may have reached peak Trump already, but it's not that Trump has peaked and is being replaced by another of the mainstream candidates. It's now Ben Carson, the doctor, not the politician, who's risen to the top of the polls. And then on the Democrat side, as we heard, the clear Corbyn analogy candidate is Bernie Sanders. One difference, which goes back to some of the things that we talked about earlier, is we've just seen the first Democratic presidential debate in which Hillary Clinton did pretty much deal with Bernie Sanders. And it did make one wonder why no one among the rival candidates to Jeremy Corbyn in the Labour election was able to come even close to that effective, essentially, squashing of Sanders. And I suspect it tells us something about the qualities of Hillary Clinton relative to the qualities of, of Corbyn's rivals. Do we now think on the Democratic side that Hillary Clinton has seen off her maverick rival? Helen? I think so, but I think the crucial thing that happened last week was Joe Biden deciding he wasn't going to run. Yeah. If he had decided he was going to run, he was Obama's preferred candidate rather than Hillary Clinton. But once that obstacle is out of the way, it's hard to see how she, in the end, doesn't get the nomination. Though I can still see her having difficulties in Iowa and New Hampshire because she's not popular in Iowa. And New Hampshire is as good a place as any for Saunders to make his, his stand. But in the end, 
she will win the nomination. I'm less clear she'll win the presidency in the end. Chris, and you said the American election hadn't really caught fire for you, in fact, that you weren't that gripped by it at all. <laughs> what, what would it take to uh, excite you in this contest? Um, or do we just need to get nearer to the real deal? I think we need to get nearer. I mean, one of the things about the Republican field is there are so many politicians that if you break double figures on any poll, you look like a front runner because. Um, and I say Carson's risen to the top. He's, yeah. he's um, so it's very difficult to get a handle on things at the moment, uh, but that field is going to uh, narrow down as people run out of money because people don't want to give money to politicians who are polling 6 or 8% in the various races. Um, I agree with what Helen said, that um, the first two states in the Democratic nomination for the, the primaries and the caucuses are, are good for Sanders, that when we get down to um, states, for example, with large African-American populations, the African-American vote seems to me to be well organized for Hillary, with Sanders making few inroads there. And I think Helen's right that Hillary Clinton is going to get the Democratic nomination. So a lot turns on who her Republican challenger is. Uh, it's too early, I think, to see who it's going to be. I don't think it's going to be Donald Trump. But when the Republican field slims itself down, we'll get a shape of what the dynamics of the race are actually going to be. When I look at the race at the moment, I just find it a bit too confusing, uh, and I don't have a high tolerance for these um, multi-candidate debates that they have, so I switch off. I'm sure you're not alone in that. So on the question then of who she might face, I was speaking to someone recently who was quite closely connected to the Hillary Clinton camp, and I asked him who did they fear, and he had a very, very clear answer. He said there's only one candidate they really fear, and that's Marco Rubio, the young Latino senator from Florida, and that I was told that the, the ticket that they really fear is Rubio plus John Kasich, who was the governor of Ohio. And American politics is weird because the electoral college system means it's not a national election at all. Certain states count much more than other states. And the two states that count most of all are Florida and Ohio. And from a Democrat perspective, they look at the electoral map and they think if we lose Florida and Ohio, we lose the White House. It's a very, very weird system. Charles, I don't know how well, I, funny enough, fully I'd... involved you are in this at the moment, but you will know, I mean, you, above anything else, you'll have known Joe Biden back in the, <laughs> back in the day. Um, he was... He, he, uh... I was guilty of plagiarising Neil Kinnock's speech, Why Am I the First Kinnock in a Thousand Generations to Go to University? And uh, Joe Biden used that in the uh, election campaign and had to withdraw from the Democratic so, race. So at this that is time. The Joe Biden's second time around. Um, yeah. I'd sketch down just before you said it Marco Rubio. I think he's personally both the most likely and potentially the most successful Republican candidate partly because of the Florida factor, but really much more because of the overall ethnic factor of representation. I mean, the great success of Obama was that he was able to build a sense of America, which was all ethnic elements within it, and the Republican opponents simply looked like a very old past group. Jeb Bush might have been able to do that to some extent, except the fact that the name Bush is so resonant of that elitist East Coast, though in fact Texas, but nevertheless East Coast, and I think Rubio will come across as somebody who can speak much more credibly for the Republicans, for the f a future country uh, which America wants to be. And I think he's absolutely the guy to watch. I also think that Hillary Clinton, I agree with Helen, Hillary Clinton will be elected. 
I wonder about her. I thought she should have been the candidate, not Obama, uh, eight years ago, and I wish she had been. I think she's a fantastic woman. I just wonder at the final points whether she'll be tough enough in the breaks, and she wasn't against Obama in the Democratic selection. And if it's her versus Rubio right at the end, I wouldn't absolutely put my money on Hillary to be able to get, which I'd be very sad about, because I think, despite all this email stuff and so on, I think she's a genuine public servant who would be a fantastic president of the United States of America. And of course, she has the disadvantage that Bush has, which it is the Clinton name. Except and, not only and one and president, black, not two. Uh, I know, but to become a dynasty in American politics is, is a challenge. So we will revisit these questions, including some of these predictions. Uh, there are lots of twists and turns to come in the American process. So our second series of election will start around the time of the Iowa primaries, and we will take it forward from there. Finally, the other thing we're going to do in the second series, because the first series is very much focused on Britain, is we want to look internationally at electoral politics, because we don't have a general election coming up, but we're still called election. But there are elections happening all over the world all the time, and every country's election is fantastically important for that country. And so while we broadcast um, in the new year, we're going to be looking at elections as they take place in places like Uganda and Peru, which we may think have nothing to do with us, but we hope we'll be able to explain why they really matter for the people there. So the final question I wanted to ask everyone was, where possibly in the world do you think over the next year or so we might be forced to think about or have to think about that we're not thinking about at the moment. If you think a couple of years ago, Ukraine wasn't on many people's radars and it suddenly rose up. Syria has been on our radars for a while. But things spring up in international politics that suddenly, even in parochial, insular domestic politics, suddenly force people to pay attention. Um, this is not asking people for predictions. It's just a sense of when you look more broadly, more globally, where do you think politics might be going to get interesting in the future, Helen? I'm going to go with Yemen. Um, it's already interesting, but we're not paying huge amounts of attention to it, partly because we're paying a lot of attention in the Middle East to Syria. But you have a fairly direct conflict going on between the two regional powers, Saudi Arabia and Iran, including Saudi Arabia taking direct military action with the support of eight other Arab states. You have ISIS controlling part of the territory of um, Yemen. You have the Americans providing some logistical assistance to the Saudis. This is going to get horrible and complicated, and I think we're going to hear a lot about it. Chris, do you have a view on this? I wonder whether things might get really interesting in the European heartland, in either France or Germany. Mm -hmm. uh, Germany is taking an awful lot of refugees from the, um, uh, the crisis in and around the Mediterranean, and that's going to play out somehow in German politics. We don't know how. Uh, to go back to what somebody in the Vox Pops that we heard said earlier, the Marine Le Pen phenomenon in France is a disturbing one. You'd expect on the face of it that a presidential election in which she made the runoff would have the same dynamic as the one where Jacques Chirac beat her, uh, her father. He didn't just beat her, he absolutely but with, but with the, but with the Republican left rallying to the Gaullist candidate. But history doesn't tend to repeat itself that straightforwardly, and Marine Le Pen does look like a much stronger candidate to me than Jean-Marie Le Pen ever was. I don't think she will end up in the Elysee. I think it's probably going to be back to Sarkozy. I wonder whether something will happen in one of the core European countries that will make things quite different to how they've been hitherto. Um, it's the impossible question, the unknown unknowns. Being very personal, Next year, there are elections in Ireland, um, and it's also the centenary of the 1916 Rising. And I think it's going to be a fundamental moment for countries like Ireland deciding which path they're going to take. And we will be talking about Irish politics in season two of election. 
Finally, Charles, we didn't warn you about this question, but feel free to... I would have gone for France or Germany, as Chris, Chris said earlier, France in particular. If I was to pick somewhere completely different, I think Iran might prove to be more surprising than people think. Following the agreement and how that goes, I could see some change in Iran. Uh, I would hope for the better. Thank you very much to Helen Thompson, Finbar Livesey and Chris Brooke, to our special guest, Charles Clark, to you, our live audience, for your contributions as well and to our new production team of Catherine Carr and Barry Colfer, and for very valuable technical support to Nick Carter and Glenn Jobson. Please do join us again in January when election returns every week to look in much more detail at the US presidential election as it unfolds, as well as continuing to keep an eye on what is happening in Britain, Europe and the wider world. We'll have a really exciting new array of guests lined up for you to explore politics from every different kind of angle, so do please join us. Until then, my name is David Runciman and this has been the University of Cambridge podcast, Election.